Well, good morning. We are continuing our series in the Gospel of Mark together as a community. Uh, But before we look at our passage, let me pray for us. Father, it seems like each week we get another painful reminder that we live in a world that's not the way it's supposed to be. Father, we know that the death and destruction that happened in Texas last week grieves you. We know the pain and the suffering that's going to last for a while is deeply, deeply troubling. Father, we know that you are in control, that you love this world, and yet we still live in a world where violence, senseless violence, happens all the time. Father, as First Baptist Church of Texas meets and prays and gathers together this morning one week after the tragedy, May they be reminded of your grace and your love. And even as we meet together today, may we be reminded of that same truth as we come into this time now to hear from your word. In your name, amen. So a few years ago, uh, I went to go see one of the members of the church that I was pastoring in uh, perform in a play. And uh, I enjoyed going to see this play in the north side of Chicago. He was performing in a tiny venue. And the actors and the audience were really close together. Now, I love in our city that we have the opportunity to uh, see big productions as well as mid-side productions of plays. But there's something special about the intimacy of a tiny show. It is fun to be that close to the action. But it can be awkward or uncomfortable at times. The play that my friend was in had one scene that was a little awkward for me as his pastor to be watching so close to him. There was this intimate scene that just made me feel pretty uncomfortable as I was watching it. And I share this with you because I think this is how we should feel as we listen to the passage that I'm about to read. This scene before us in the garden with Jesus and his disciples is so intimate and frightening that we almost should feel a little embarrassed to be onlookers. We should feel a little bit awkward as we watch once again the disciples and their false self-confidence. We should feel a little bit uncomfortable as we see the pain and the deep, dark emotions of our Savior Jesus. This is a stark, dark, comfortless scene before us. From the relatively calm, serene, peaceful meal in the upper room that we looked at last week, we get this dark, scandalous storm breaking loose. And we together get to be eyewitnesses of this great pain our Savior went through. So I'm going to read for us from Mark 14. And you could just listen as I read or follow along in your Bible or order of worship. But I'll be beginning in verse 26. And when they had sung a hymn... They went out to the Mount of Olives. And Jesus said to them, You will all fall away, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Peter said to him, Even though they all fall away, I will not. And Jesus said to him, Truly I tell you, this very night before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. But he said emphatically, If I must die with you, I will not deny you. And they all said the same. And they went to the place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. And he took with him Peter 
and James and John and began to greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch. And going a little bit further, he fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. Yet not what I will, but what you will. And he came and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not watch one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And again he went away and prayed, saying the same words. And again he came and found them sleeping. For their eyes were very heavy, and they did not know what to answer him. And he came a third time and said to them, Are you still sleeping and taking your rest? It is enough. The hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. This is God's word, and it is given to us for our good. All right, I want you to think about this for for a moment. If you've been with us at all during this series of the Gospel of Mark, up to this point in the story that Mark has been telling us, Jesus has always been in control. Again and again, we have watched Jesus lead and direct and confront and teach and protect especially the weak and the vulnerable around him. But here in our account before us, Jesus himself is the one who is weak and vulnerable. Here in the garden, Jesus suddenly becomes troubled and distressed. He cries out in pain. He falls to the ground. Every fiber of his being seems to be wrestling with his calling and God's plan for his life. Jesus is facing death and he's shuddering in distress and anguish. This is no Greek-style heroic tale. This is no stoic heroicism in the face of death. I mean, compare this scenario with what happened when Socrates was killed. Evidence shows that Socrates was forced to drink poison. And as he was drinking the poison, he not only remained calm, but he reprimanded his followers for showing any emotion at all. This is not what Jesus is doing here. He is greatly distressed and troubled. He is so overwhelmed that he falls to the ground in pain. One paraphrase of this passage says it this way. Jesus plunged into a sinkhole of dreadful agony. Again, think about this for a moment. Up to this point in the Gospels, even when others had failed him, even when people attacked him, even when demons came on the scene, Jesus was always the one who had it together. He was always the one who knew what to do. He was always the one in control. But here in our account this morning, we have a different picture of Jesus than we've seen so far. Here we see Jesus in real deep pain as a broken, hurting son. We hear Jesus say the words, My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Here in this section of Mark, we get to watch Jesus as he prays to struggle with the frightened reality of God's will and what it means for him to fully submit to it. Gethsemane was a foretaste of the agony of separation that Jesus was about to experience. What is so crushing to Jesus at this time was not the anticipation of the beatings that he would have happen to him. 
It was not the humiliation or the pain of hanging on a cross that shook Jesus to the core. The pain that made Jesus weep was knowing that soon he would be abandoned by the one he has always known as Abba, Father. Jesus knew that soon he would be crying out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So Jesus asks for the cup to be removed. The cup in verse 36 is the cup of God's judgment on sinful humanity. The cup that Jesus wanted to be removed was the separation between him and God when on the cross he took on the sins of the world. You and I deserve to drink that cup. You and I deserve the pain and the separation from God because we do not do what he calls us to do. We don't love God with our whole heart, soul, and mind. We don't love our neighbor like we should. We deserve to be separated from a holy and righteous God because of our sins. But because of Jesus and the work on the cross, if we rest in him alone, we will never, ever face the abandonment from our God. Because of Jesus, we will never cry the cry of abandonment that Jesus did on the cross. And we will never experience the silence from God that Jesus experienced in the garden. In Gethsemane, Jesus met the dreadful silence of God who has already spoken and the Son must obey. The cup will not be taken away. The hour of death will not pass. And I believe that this broken, suffering man, Jesus, in the garden can give us hope today. I believe this prayer time of Jesus, broken and alone, can set us free if we let it. See, I believe that one of the greatest fears people have is that God is indifferent or aloof to our pain. Some of you right now, and I know some of you in the past, has felt like God must not care. God must not be listening. God must not love me because I'm suffering so much. And sometimes the evidence seems to prove this to be true. If God truly cared, he would not allow this much brokenness in our world. If God truly cared, he would not allow us to suffer so much in despair. Some of us today are crying out to our God, where are you? Why don't you care for me? Now, our passage today does not explain why God allows suffering. Our passage today does not give us a simple path to shake off the pain and despair that you're experiencing. While there's no easy answers to suffering, there is hope, I think, in this passage. There is comfort as we look at this prayer time of Jesus in the garden. In the garden, and especially then on the cross, we see that we worship a God who is not only the God of those who suffer, but he is the God who does suffer. We worship a God who doesn't just, doesn't just care for those who suffer. We worship a God who he himself suffered. Jesus experienced far greater suffering than any of us in this room will ever experience. And Jesus can relate to your pain. Because Jesus felt rejection like some of you feel right now. Jesus felt isolation and betrayal like some of you have experienced in your life. 
Jesus faced alienation and fear and separation and death. And why did he experience all this? For you. For you. For me. Jesus was willing to go through so much pain and suffering for you and me. In this garden, Jesus knew what was ahead of him. He knew that he could have bailed. He wanted to bail. But he stayed. He submitted to God and his plan for him, which meant he was going to die. And he did this for us. If we believe this even a little bit, think about the confidence we can have with our lives. If we believed in the midst of our pain and our suffering that Jesus experienced greater pain and suffering for us, imagine how bold we can be. Imagine if we can truly believe that no matter what we do, God will never forsake us. God will never stop loving us. God was always for us because of his son, Jesus. This faithful Savior who made it to the end is our only hope to know that we can make it to the end in a painful world. So we have the faithfulness of Jesus in the midst of pain and despair in our passage, but as well we have the unfaithfulness and the failings once again of his disciples. Jesus is not surprised by any of this. In fact, our passage that was read to us today begins with Jesus quoting a prophecy of how the sheep will scatter when the shepherd is struck. And this happened for sure. A few verses after our passage today, we read these words about the disciples after Jesus was taken away. And they all left him and fled. The sheep did flee once the shepherd was struck. But of course, once again, we see the false confidence and the promise of Peter and the rest of the disciples. Peter says very boldly, even though they're all going to fall away, I will not. And Jesus predicts that this very night, you will betray me three times. And Peter digs in his heels and says, even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. Jesus wasn't alone in his self-confidence. All the disciples boldly promised to be faithful. They believed that they had what it took to handle whatever was about to come up. They confidently promised Jesus that even if others failed, they would stay strong because they had what it took to do it. Are we any different today? How often do we rest in our own abilities, our own resolve to fight against sin? And then when we do blow it, which we all blow it, how often do we just handle our failures by promising never to do it again? How often do we not even see the danger around us until it's too late? All of us have a danger of allowing this confidence that is false to make us believe we have what it takes to be good. I was reminded once again last weekend of this very thing in my life. The pastors and the elders of this church, we went away for, for a brief time to pray and to talk about our church and the goals and the plans we have for the year. And it was a wonderful time of meeting together for a few days. But on the first day that we were in this place up in Michigan, near Lake Michigan, I decided to go out for a walk in the morning before we began our all-day meeting. And as I was walking on the beach and thinking and praying, I thought, you know, this is going to be a long day of meetings, and I need to prepare myself. 
And if you know something about me, you know that I love sarcasm. And I also love humor a lot. And I use humor sometimes in inappropriate ways. I use humor to try to protect myself. I use humor to make someone maybe feel a little bad so that I feel better. I use humor not well often. And so I thought, okay, what I'm going to do is I'm going to fight against these things. And I'm going to do what is known as the tongue exercise. Now, any of you who have been in the Covenant Life class recently or you've ever done Sonship, which is a discipleship mentoring program, you probably know what the tongue exercise is. But those of you that don't, here's what it is. And I'd encourage you to try it this week. For one week, you try not to complain, criticize, blame, defend, boast, or deceive. For one week, the goal is to try to not do these things. And I thought, well, I'm not going to do one week, but I'm going to do this one day. For one day, I'm not going to complain, I'm not going to blame, I'm not going to criticize. I'm going to do this for our meeting to go well. I lasted about 20 minutes. And you know, that didn't surprise me. And I don't think you would last any longer. So many of us have great intentions in our lives and we quickly fail. So many of us, like the disciples here in our account, promise loyalty to Jesus no matter what. And then we can't even stay awake one hour for him. Jesus says pretty clearly to the disciples who keep falling asleep, and he says it to you and me today, the spirit is indeed willing, but the flesh is weak. Good intentions, good promises we make to God and others often fail because of our weak flesh. To try to obey God, to try to follow God in our own strength and resolve will always lead to failure. So what do we do? Do we just not try to obey God anymore? Well, of course not. Obedience is actually a good thing to strive for. Should we just set our expectations a little low when it comes to obedience? Well, the scriptures call us to be holy, for God is holy. That seems like a high expectation, not a low expectation. So what do we do? How do we deal with our weak flesh and our propensity to break promises we make to be better? Well, think about what happens here in our account today. Jesus is in the garden. He is greatly troubled, and he takes three of the disciples with him to go off and pray. We don't know why he chooses Peter, James, and John, but they seem to be the leaders of the disciples. They were actually the ones that got to see Jesus in glory, in transfiguration, and now they get to see Jesus in agony. We don't know for sure why these three were chosen, but I think it's interesting that these three were the most vocal of being willing to withstand anything for Jesus. In our account, we've already looked at Peter promises loyalty till death. And a few chapters before, James and John promised that they could drink the cup of suffering just like Jesus, that they could die the death just like Jesus. The three with the boldest claims can't even wait up a little bit when their friend asked them to watch and pray. Three times he asks for support, and three times they fail Jesus. And what is recorded of Jesus the first time he finds them sleeping? Well, verse 38 has Jesus telling them, watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. Now, Jesus was not just asking these disciples to watch and pray for his sake. He was warning them of the danger that they needed to be prepared for. Think about our Savior in the midst of one of the most painful, dark, all-alone night 
he still cared for his disciples and wanted them to be prepared for what was about to happen. He today still cares for us. And the call to watch and pray is the same call that we must grab hold of when it comes to the failings and the struggles in our lives. Often we fail at temptation. Often we break promises quickly because we are very unaware of the danger around us. We are warned to be aware and watch out, but instead of being alert and ready, we are groggy and unprepared. So our calling today, brothers and sisters, our calling is to watch and pray. To be ready and pray as we follow Jesus. And prayer is an acknowledgement of our utter dependence upon God. Prayer is an expression of our inability to accomplish things on our own. Prayer is admitting weakness and frailty and our complete need for help. When we pray, we are acknowledging that we need God's assistance, that we need God's help, that we need God's power, that we need God's resources that he promises us. Jesus knew this personally. One of the hardest nights of his life, Jesus is facing one of the greatest temptations he ever experienced to run away from the plan of God to die. And in his pain and in his tears, he pours out a lament to his Father in heaven. Three times he cries out to his Father and places himself into the hands of his Father and the plans of his Father. How much more, if our Savior needed to do this, should we be people who pray? How much more do we need to turn to God in prayer? And think about this prayer of Jesus here. Jesus is asking God to change his mind. And that is okay to pray for. Jesus is lamenting that he is to die and he doesn't want to. And that is okay. It is okay to beg God, to lament to God that you are upset, that you are frustrated, that you want change and you are disappointed that it's not happening. Read the Psalms. They are full of broken cries and laments to God. God is big enough for us to come to him with all our junk and pain and doubts and questions. You know, we will never face the struggles that Jesus faced in the garden. But many of us do struggle in our day-to-day lives. And it is hard to pray. It is hard to pray because we pray and we pray and we pray and the marriage doesn't get any better. We pray and we pray and we pray and we still don't get that relationship that we want. We pray and we pray and we pray and the mistreatment of those in power keeps happening. We pray and we pray and we pray and senseless violence in our city and our world doesn't stop. The pain gets deeper. The wound gets bigger. Prayer is hard because we don't always see and often don't see the results we want. Prayer is hard because it is hard to trust in God when we don't think he is listening. Prayer is hard because it's so easy to be distracted And to turn to other things to seek comfort and security in. And prayer takes a lot of work because if we work at praying, we will eventually, hopefully, 
get to a point where we can pray like Jesus, not what I will, but what you will, God. Prayer is hard, but it's an important thing that we get to do as children of God. Do you understand that the God who created the world, the God who sustains the world, the God who is in control of all things, wants you to talk to him? The God who created all things wants you to turn to him and spend time with him and to ask him for things. And listen, again and again, the theme of Mark and the theme of our passage and the theme of this sermon is that God is faithful and we are not. That Jesus is faithful and his disciples, including you and me, are not. They cannot do what they're called to do, nor can we. They do not watch and pray. And often we don't either. They don't stay with Jesus when the guards come to take him away. They flee from Jesus. Often you and I flee from God and what he calls us to do with our lives. They don't stand up and say we're willing to die for Jesus. And many of us do not stand up for what we believe about God when we're around our friends and our coworkers and our neighbors. And like us, they don't keep their promises to be faithful. And Jesus knows this. And in the midst of this dark and suffering chapter, we are given a picture of hope and promise to the disciples in the garden and the disciples here in this room as well. Jesus knew that the shepherd would be struck down. Jesus also knew that the sheep would flee. But Jesus also says, but after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Jesus not only once again promises the hope of the resurrection, which is our only hope as well, that the cross took care of the sin and he was set free to live and to reign and to rule forever. And it gives us our freedom in him as well. But it also says that Jesus is going to rise up and once again become the shepherd that brings his people back to him. He will call back his sheep, including Peter, who very quickly is going to deny him three times. You see, what we know is that the kingdom of God that Jesus brings about cannot be ruined by any human failings. The kingdom of God is not dependent upon you being perfect and good and right. The kingdom of God depends on the power of Christ's death and resurrection. The hope that after I am raised up actually happened is our hope as well. That this faithful Savior came and died and rose again and now he ascended into heaven and he is leading and he is guiding and he is protecting us as his children, as the great shepherd of the sheep. May we run to him, may we love him, and may we turn to him with our failings and our broken promises and thank him for covering up our sin by dying on the cross and drinking the cup of wrath for us. Let us pray. Father, we thank you that you are worthy of praise. And we thank you that you see fit to love us, to save us, and to care for us. We are foolish, stupid sheep that run our own ways all the time. Thank you for gathering us, protecting us, feeding us, and leading us. And may we believe that now and the rest of our lives. Amen.